after third service in the East Room. Now, let me just close with this. You might be asking this morning, why should we help Pakistan? You say, well, of course, I would like to do that. And it, it is a joy for me to see Nas here running the work better than I did when I was there. It's, it's a delight. But why help Pakistan? And God gave me this picture. Who runs toward a burning building? Most of us, when we see a fire, we run away because we think we're going to get hurt. But there are two people that run toward a burning building. One is somebody who has a loved one in that building. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who need our help in Pakistan. And who's the other one that runs toward a burning building? It's a fireman. Somebody whose responsibility it is to save people out of the fire. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been saved... It's your privilege and responsibility to snatch others from those from those flames. And that's what we're doing in Pakistan to bring the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ to a people lost in darkness. Will you join us next Sunday? Thank you very much. Good morning. The scripture passage for this morning is found in John chapter 1. If you will take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 1, I will begin reading verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we um, thank you for your word, and I pray today that um, you would um, use my understanding of this text and my work in it to uh, clearly communicate the beauty of the power of what is here. Um, God, I ask you that in the next 40 minutes, that you would literally birth some people into the kingdom. I know there's people here today who are searching, are are trying to figure out what's going on, who feel terribly guilty about their life or have just reached the end of their rope. And today, I believe by divine appointment, that person, those people are here. And I pray that today would be a day when they walk out of this place having prayed to become a child of yours. And so help us to see this and to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is by no coincidence that the concept of light has a prominent role in the birth narrative of Jesus. Just think of all the ways that the light or light shows up. You have the angels who are, uh, or the shepherds rather, who are in the field, minding their own business, tending their flocks by night, and suddenly an angel appears, and the glory of the Lord does what? It shines around him. Right, so there's light. Think of the wise men who see a star rising in the sky. 
And they travel many miles because they see the light of this star. Or think in um, the Gospel of Matthew when the wise men finally come to um, find the Christ child. It says that they actually found the location of where he was because the light, the star, came to rest over the place where he was. That's Matthew 2.11. You know this. Light announces important events. I mean, when there's a big sale at a store, what do they do? They break out the spotlights and they shine around, right? You go, what's going on? What's going on? It announces um, when, when a person of prominence comes out on the stage, they darken it and they, they light it up and, and it announces important news. We're taking the weeks leading up to um, Christmas or Advent, which means the coming or the arrival, to help us focus on the meaning of this holiday. We, we want to pull you back, if you will, from the gravitational pull of our culture to help you see the theological and spiritual significance of this season. Today we're going to look at what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. Last week we looked at what John says when he begins this gospel, and that he says, in the beginning was the Word. And we looked at six foundational truths about who Jesus was and what that means for us. Now, next week we're going to look at the concept of what it means for Jesus to have come in the flesh. But today, I want to simply dial in to this idea of what it means for Jesus to be light. And what we're going to see today, and the single thing that I'm going to say over and over and over, is this central truth, that the purpose, the mission of Jesus in this world is to rescue rebels through regeneration. That is the aim for which Jesus has come. That is what John is introducing. That is the theme of John's advent And frankly, it is the essence of what we're going to not only talk about today, but what this church is all about. It is that Jesus' mission in the world is to rescue rebels through regeneration. And so we're going to look at what it means for God to rescue, what it means for us to be rebels, and then finally just to talk about the glory of what the new birth is all about. So John chapter 1, let's begin in verse 9. The first thing I want you to see here is that God's mission through Christ is that he has come to our rescue. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So John just doesn't use light. No, instead he describes Jesus as light. In fact, last week we saw in verses 4 and 5 that he began this metaphor transition from in the beginning was the Word, and then we saw in verse 4, John changes it, and he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John uses this theme of light and Jesus as the light. But what's more, in verse 9, he then takes it up another notch, and he says, the true light He calls Jesus the true light. And this this light motif has enormous implications for salvation, but it is rooted in the purpose of even Old Testament Israel. And what you need to know is that the mission of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. That was central to the calling that God had put upon them. Listen, for instance, to Isaiah 9 and verse 2. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. 
Or take Isaiah chapter 60 in God's purpose for Israel. Here's what he says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And then here's the mission. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, friends, this is the purpose of Israel. It is to be God's people and to be light to the world. In fact, in so doing, they were to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 22, when he said to Abraham, through you, all the offspring of, through your offspring rather, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what happens is that Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment not only of that promise to Abraham, but the very mission of Israel, that he becomes the embodiment of the light to the world, the very purpose for which Israel was placed on the earth, through which the Gentiles, us, would see spiritual light. In fact, when Jesus was dedicated at the temple, an old Jewish man named Simeon took Jesus, this little child, into his arms, no doubt raised him up or cradled him, and he said this. This is his prayer to God. He said, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then he says this, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. You see it? See the connection? The light is the purpose, the plan, the mission of God. And Jesus, as the true light, is the full embodiment of what God intends to do. So light is what Israel was destined for, and light is what Jesus brings. Actually, according to John 1, it's not just that Jesus brings the light, but Jesus is the light. Notice, how intentional this mission is of bringing the light. He says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This light has a purpose. Its purpose is to enlighten people. That word enlighten means to shine upon, and it refers to spiritual illumination. Now, you could read that text and say, enlighten everyone. Does that mean everyone Everyone is Enlightened, everyone receives spiritual enlightenment. Well, in order to answer that question, you have to go back to verses 6 and 8, previous two verses, 6, 7 and 8 rather, and see that John is contrasting the ministry of John the Baptist with that of Jesus. In fact, he says of John the Baptist, verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So what John is saying is he's contrasting John the Baptist's ministry with Jesus' ministry. He's saying that John was not the true light, but he was the precursor to the light. That's Jesus. And then he says that everyone is enlightened through him. Not that everyone is enlightened, but everyone who is enlightened is only enlightened through the person and work of Jesus. That's his point. The point is the exaltation of Jesus. Everyone who believes Everyone who's enlightened comes through Jesus. The final phrase really captures the essence of the verse and the essence of my point. John says that this true light, this spiritually illuminating light, was coming into the world. Clearly what this is, is a reference to the directional intention of the light. 
The idea is there's a world of darkness, a world that's, that's wrapped with sin, a world that is, is filled with distance and dissonance from God, and God sends the light, and the light penetrates the darkness. The idea is there are people in the, this dark world, and the light comes that shines on them. They, they're, 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 they're dark, they don't understand, their, their minds are clouded, and suddenly the light comes, and it's the invasion of God into their world. And John announces here, in the birth of Jesus, that God, through this light of the world, listen, has come to rescue people. Not unlike God's deliverance from Egypt, where God took his people out of slavery, now he's going to take them out of a bigger problem of slavery, the slavery of their sin. He's going to send Jesus to deliver them, to rescue them, to save them. In fact, that's what the name Jesus means. Remember when the angel comes to Joseph in the dream? In Matthew chapter 1, he tells them, you will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their what? Sins. Right. The mission of God, therefore, and the image of light both convey this important spiritual reality that God has come to rescue people. Now just stop for a moment and think of that. God came To rescue you. He pursued you. He found you. In fact, some of you, this is is the first time you've been in church for a long time, or you're in the process of searching, and this day, December 11th, is the day when God is going to find you. We, we try to capture what this means. We, we, We talk about it, we read about it, we also, we sing about it. Charles Wesley wrote a great song, And Can It Be? And here's how he captures the essence of God finding us. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Here it comes. Tis mercy all, immense and free. And then here it is. And for, oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God. God, it found out me. What John is telling us here is fundamentally what is so beautiful about the incarnation of Jesus is this, that God comes to your rescue. You were in a dark, horrible place, and God found you, and he rescued you. And for some of you, I pray that today will be the day where he finds you. So God rescues us. Here's the second point. Verses 10 and 11. Text tells us that we have rebelled against our Creator. Again, God rescues rebels. So the beautiful thing about the incarnation of Jesus is that He rescues us. And then the tragedy is, is that He's rescuing rebels. And so John sets us up. And the punchline is going to come in the third point. So God didn't just rescue people who needed help. Certainly we needed help. But listen, he rescued people who had rebelled against him. So the miracle is not just that God found you. His grace isn't just amazing in that he found you, but it is that when he found you, he loved you. The miracle here, and the reason for so much amazement, is because of the unbelievable rebellion of mankind against their Creator. 
And we're all complicit in this rebellion. John outlines for us two different ways in which we express our rebellion. And depending on your personality type, your bent, and a little bit of your background, you might express your rebellion either in A, indifference, which sounds like, nah, I don't care, it's no big deal, God, well, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to worry about it. It'll all work out in the end. That is dangerous belief. So there's indifference, and then there's outright rejection of people who are like, get off my back, God, leave me alone. And don't get in my face, you Christian. Don't you tell me about my sin. Don't you tell me about my need to be restored to my Creator. And so either or are both differences that are minor in regards to our rebellion. Verse 10 identifies our indifference. It says this, He was in the world, there's one, and the world was made to him, that's two, And yet the world did not know him. That's three. The text tells us here three things about our indifference. First, John tells us that God, Jesus in particular, has an obvious presence in creation. Romans chapter 1 tells us that creation declares that God exists. And so what John is saying here is he was in the world. In other words, not the incarnation, not him as a baby. That's not what he means here. He means that he was in the world. In that, you could look at all of creation. You could see everything that is. And there's something in you that knows there's a God who did this. At the birth of a child, when you hold a newborn infant, there's something within you that you just know God is real. You see the beauty of a sunset, you see the nature around you, you know. And the Bible tells us that creation declares that God exists. That's the tragedy of evolution, to say that we evolved from some accident or primordial swamp. is to not only do bad science, but it is also to communicate that God isn't God. He was in the world. Secondly, the world was made through him. So this is not just that creation tells us about him, but this is even more significant in that creation belongs to him. So it's not just that creation tells us about him, but it shows us, this text does, that creation is his domain. Everything was made through him. The implication of this is stunning, that if God is creator... That means that everything is accountable to him. It means he gets to set the rules. He gets to tell you what's right and what's wrong. He gets to define what is moral and what is immoral. He gets to determine the rules of life because he's the creator. So if God exists, and if he's creator, and he gets to set the rules, then the reality is everyone is accountable to him. Because nobody can stand before God and say, I didn't know you were real. Creation declares it. I didn't know there were rules in life. Your conscience bears witness that there are rules. There's guilt. I've said this over and over and over. Guilt is a gift to remind you, to tell you, to warn you, God is real. Third, the text says the world does not know him. It, this, this is ignorance. And this indifference is not accidental ignorance. This, this ignorance is willful, intentionally refusing to deal with the obvious fact that you are created and there is a God to whom you are accountable. It, it would be silly for you to live life and say, I didn't know you were real. I didn't know there were rules. I didn't know there was right and wrong. I didn't know there was someone to whom I was accountable. It, it would be like you being pulled over by a police officer. And the man or woman comes to the window and they say, do you know how fast you were going? It'd be one thing to say, uh, no, but probably pretty fast. It'd be one thing. 
Secondly, they could ask you, do you know what the speed limit is? And you might say, I, I, don't, I don't really know what the speed limit is. But it would be another, even more ridiculous thing for you to go, speed limits? I didn't know there were speed limit laws. I just thought you could do whatever you want. It would be a diff- incredibly indifferent and frankly a bit rebellious. And that's why you laugh, because it's ridiculous. In the same way, friends, it is ridiculous for someone to live on planet Earth and live and act and think as if God isn't real and if there wasn't going to be an accounting for our lives. So indifference, don't, don't think for a moment you're going to get off from being accountable to God because you're just like, well, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's not only dangerous to be candid, it's dumb. Romans 1 says it's foolish. The second thing is not only this indifference, but also just outright rebellion. Look what it says. It says that he came to his own. This is verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John, John amps it up a bit here. If you have an ESV Bible or another translation, you may have a footnote. My ESV Bible has a footnote in it, and it's fairly important. He came to his own. The footnote says this, Greek to his own things. That is, to his own domain, to his own people. So the idea is this, is that Jesus came to his own things, the, his own, the things that he had created. He comes to the realm that he had made. He comes to things that should be rightfully his. He comes to things that should bow the knee to him. He comes to things that should worship and glorify him. He comes to the things that owe him glory, and his own things rejected him. John is setting this up. To show you the tragedy and the irony and how wrong this is. That here is the light of the world that the whole world should have known, should have seen, should have paid homage to. And he comes to his own domain. And this isn't just an heir. This isn't just a son. This is the son, the creator, the, the, the maker of all things. And he comes and his own things reject him. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, says this. When the word came to this world, he did not come as an alien. He came home. Moreover, he came to Israel. He, had he come to another nation, it would have been bad enough, but Israel was particularly God's own people. The word did not go where he could not have been expected to be known. He came home where people ought to have known him. He came to what belonged to him, and his own things said, get out of here. His own people, the next text Next phrase in the text, his own people did not receive him. The word for people, there's no word in the original language, it's supplied. It means his own things, his own people, his own creation, his own created order did not receive him. The word receive, listen, listen. the word receive, this will be important in a moment, means to enter into intimate fellowship with. It's, it's what the Bible describes Joseph did with Mary in receiving her as his wife. It's what Jesus describes that he'll do with us in John 14 when he will receive us into his kingdom. And John says they did not receive him. Instead, he was rejected. And this rejecting of the Son of God becomes the dangerous act of rebellion. God sends his son to the very world that he created and his own creatures not only reject him, what's more, they kill him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being on planet earth, hearing out of your mouth, crucify him, and then have Peter, 
at Pentecost say this, God made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus who you crucified. In other words, the guy you just killed, yeah, he's Lord and Christ. In other words, he's coming back. Translation, you're in big trouble. And the response of the people was, what shall we do? Great question. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Now you might think, well, Mark, I wasn't there. I didn't say crucify him. I wasn't in the praetorium when all of that happened. And I just want you to know something, that sin at any level is rebellion against the creator of the universe. Any time that you decide to go your own way, any time you want to ex- you express your autonomy, you say, in effect, to God, I'm going to do things my way, no matter if you're, a, if you're a small infant or a senior citizen, if you're married, if you're single, doesn't matter what your lot in life is, every time that you choose to go your own way and you push off God's rule, that, in effect, is rebellion against the creator of the universe. The rejection of Jesus began at his crucifixion, but it continues every day when people refuse to acknowledge his rule. The rebellion continues when people choose in subtle or brazen ways to worship the creature more than the creator. So John sets all this up. God has come to rescue. He's come to rescue rebels. And really, frankly, all of that is introduction for the main point of this sermon. And it's found in verse, in the point number three. And it's this. That God has come to rescue rebels through regeneration. In this, in these two verses, we see the miracle of what's called the new birth. You've heard people say born again. Regeneration, that's a big theological word for it. That's what we're talking about. And this new birth, this being born again, this regeneration is a miracle. It's a miracle, and it's set in contrast to the sin-infected world in which we live. So the message of this text is that in the midst of the darkness of the world and the darkness of the human heart, God does something. What does he do? He literally recreates people. Oh, they're the same physically, but they're not the same He changes them from walking dead people to walking spiritually alive people. He puts a new heart in there where there used to be a heart of stone. He gives freedom and forgiveness where there used to be guilt and judgment. He literally changes people from the inside out. He makes them new. They are born again. Now keep in mind that this passage is primarily about Jesus. It is about his incarnation, about why it's important, and what his incarnation accomplishes. So the focal point is God. Don't miss this. This text is going to talk about our role. It's going to talk about what we do, but don't lose the main focus. It is God who rescues rebels through regeneration. That's the beauty of this passage. And so... John, having set up this religious indifference and this religious rejection of Jesus, this willful unbelief, he now talks about the incredible mercy that is given by God through the light of the world, and he starts with what we do. Verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, 
there's this world of darkness and Jesus has been rejected and they didn't see him, they didn't recognize him. And yet John says, but there's good news that there are some people who do welcome Jesus into their intimate fellowship. There are some people who do acknowledge who he is. There are some people who do open their hearts to him. And then he clarifies what those people did. The text says, who believe in his name. So he clarifies, those who received him, those who believe in his name. What does that mean? That means that they believed that he really was truly the Son of God. That means that they believed that he really was the Messiah. That he really did make a sufficient payment for sins. They believe what Jesus says about himself. And they believe what the Bible says about them. Them, their selves, himself, herself. And in their believing, here's what they do. They end up putting their faith, their trust in Jesus. They believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners. So to believe in his name means that you have come to agree with the Bible about your sin, the judgment you deserve, and the atonement that only comes through Jesus. To be frank, To believe in his name means you no longer believe in your name. In your ability to self-atone. To do things that merit God's mercy. That's what it means to believe. And then, notice next what, what happens. The unbelievable thing that John says next. He says, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now remember who these children are. Remember, they're not just orphans. It's not that God comes to an orphanage and adopts children who need a home. No, no, no. These aren't orphans. These are traitors. It's not just that they are made citizens. No, it's even more glorious than that. They're made children of God. It's unbelievable. And along with becoming a child of God, he gives them the rights, the privileges. These these sinful and rebellious people are now called children of God, and they're given a gift, the gift of parental love, the gift of unbelievable grace and honor of being part of God's family. And this theme of give, give, give is the central reality of what God is doing in redemption. I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's as incredible as Indiana beating Kentucky last night, right? Right? It's incredible. I just had to throw that in today. Just a little insert in there. So, and the reason that this is amazing and incredible is because they are not granted clemency or freedom or immunity. Not just that. No, they're granted the full-blooded rights of children. They become part of God's family. They become the gracious recipients, the gracious emblems of God's honor, His love, His safety, they become the children of God. So the picture again is this light of the world comes and God comes to a dark world to rescue people. He comes to those who are rebels and as many as receive Him, these rebels, He gives them the right, the right to become children of God. And when you look at that, you look at all this, there has to be a question that goes in the back of your mind. And the question is this, how does that happen? How does that happen? And the answer is, God. It happens by virtue of the power of God that through him and by him, 
It means understanding and realizing that we would have never been rescued on our own. The good news of the gospel is this, is that you cannot do it. You need someone else's help. You need what's called an alien righteousness. You need the righteousness of Jesus. You need him to give you a completely new life and a life that you can't create on your own. And to make this point very, very clear, and again, keep in mind, this passage is not about you. This passage is about God and what he did for and in and through you by the power of Jesus. John says this in verse 13. To clarify how they were born, he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, John looks back at the conversion of these people, these ones who believed in Jesus, and he answers the question, how did that happen? And the answer is, God did it. So when you approach the celebration of this Christmas season, you need to remember that the advent of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, is a colossal reminder that God invaded your world, he rescued you, he found you, and he birthed you. And so at the end of the day, everything belongs to him, all honor and glory and blessing, that everything about your life is for one purpose, to make much of him, because he did it all. That's why he uses the concept of birth. Because it's a perfect example. In fact, Jesus will use the same metaphor. You have a Bible? Go over to John chapter 3. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, wants to know the secrets of the kingdom. What does it mean to be one of your followers? And Jesus gives one of the most important explanations of God's initiative in conversion. Verse 3, John 3, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How, how can a man be born when he's old? He's frustrated. How, you're using a metaphor. How can a man be born when he's old? It's impossible. How can he enter, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered. He's, he's hitting on this impossibility. He's dissembling Nicodemus. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he explains it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, your conversion, your birth has to be by the spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he explains that this is an incredible mystery meant to humble us and meant to make us close our mouth and just go, oh oh God, it found out me. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How does it work? How does this happen? The answer, God. So what is Jesus saying here? What What is John saying here? He's saying this, that true conversion, listen, true conversion means total transformation and it is completely dependent upon God. It's an absolute miracle, and it's a great mystery. And John and Jesus use the analogy of a birth to describe what takes place. And if you've been at a birth, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that that child is very alive and very involved. But at the end of the day, when the child is born, he doesn't say, I did it. (laughs) No, he doesn't. He was acted upon. He had no 
no involvement in his conception. No decision as to when he was born. Is he alive? Is he there? Is he participating? Certainly. But there's a greater force overweighing everything about him. So that's why Jesus uses the concept of birth. It's a miracle. So you didn't create your birth. You certainly participate, but you didn't initiate it. It is a miracle of God. And then to make this very, very clear, John says three things. He says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. What do these things mean? Not of blood, it means this. doesn't matter what family you're born into. doesn't matter what nation you belong to. doesn't matter what your upbringing is. Those things do not create the new birth. Hear me, all of you who grew up in Christian homes, young people who are in Christian homes right now, you, you go to church every week because your parents make you and require that of you. It's a wonderful thing, but don't you for a minute think you're going to get into glory because of what your family does or who you were born into in terms of a family. Just because you know a truth doesn't mean you've received the truth. Just because your family sits around and talks about the truth doesn't mean it's really internal. There are hundreds of children born into Christian homes who assume that because they're in Christian environments that they are truly, truly born again when they are not. And so John says... National identity, family heritage, your upbringing will not create the new birth. Here's the second thing he says. This is hard. Nor of the will of the flesh. Now, for years I've thought about this, and let me explain to you how I think this works. What John says is even your own desire, even your own, listen, will, even your decision. Did you decide? Sure you did. Did you receive Christ? Absolutely you did. But you did not do that first or alone. So even your will, as free as it feels, needs the help of God. Some of you would say, well, do you believe in free will? And I was, well, certainly I do. I was free to choose this tie, free to choose this coat, chose who I married, chose what I ate for breakfast today. But to say that that's in the same category as the freedom to choose Jesus when the Bible tells me I'm spiritually have a darkened heart, those are two very different things. I need God's empowerment to even know that Jesus can be trusted. Some of you might think, well, that then makes us like robots, or that means that God forces us to love him. My sons asked me this, we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, and I, I gave them this analogy, and I said, I just don't buy that, and here's why. Because I think that the analogy is completely broken down. We're not robots. What we are is we're someone who's dead on the side of a street. And suddenly, after having a major heart attack, we're there and we need help. And we're unable to help ourselves. And some kind person comes over and they begin to give us CPR. And they pump on our chest. And suddenly, because of their actions, the heart begins to beat again and the life comes back. And the person who's resuscitated would never say to the person who did the CPR, I didn't ask you to do that. Instead, what they would do is what they would hug them and say, thank you. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. They didn't choose to love that person. That person loved them first, and then they responded. And I think that's close, maybe, to what happens in our conversion. In other words, at the end of the day, God is the one undergirding all that happens in our conversion. And I know that opens up a whole lot of questions at the end of the day. I can't resolve all of those, but what I know is this, is God was the one who was working all these things out for his own glory. 
Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh. Then it says, nor of the will of man. In other words, nobody else can choose this for you. As much as your parents want you to, they can't choose it for you. As much as your spouse would want you to receive Christ, they can't make it happen. I can't force it on you. I can do my very best to present to you the gospel. But even in the very best and most eloquent way of presenting the gospel, at the end, I can't do it. God has to. And oh, how I've prayed this morning. I laid in bed last night and read this. I said, God, please, please do that today. Our elders prayed, God, please convert people today. And it may be the very reason why you're here is because this very message is going to land on a heart that God is wooing to himself this very day. Now, don't you for a minute hear me saying that you don't need to choose Christ. Don't you for a minute walk out of here and think that I'm not saying that you don't really need to believe. John just told us one verse earlier about believing I'm calling you today to believe in Jesus. I'm calling you today to choose to believe in him. But the glory and the beauty of this text is that when you believe, you know that if it were up to you, you would never believe. That's the beauty of God's unbelievable grace. The miracle of the new birth is that you know that unless God rescued you, came after you, recreated you, and rescued you, you'd be totally lost without any hope. Again, Wesley, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin by nature's night. Here it comes. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The light of the world is the quickening ray that wakes us, floods the dungeon with light, and then sets us free. And we know that he is the one that does it. So the question then I want to ask you today is this. So what do you see? If you believe this truth, if you hold these truths, if this is what, you, this is what you've given your life to, then I want you to know that this reality that God has done this should transform everything about your life. The fact is that you've been set free. You are a new creature. Old things are gone. Everything is now new. So live like it for crying out loud. Stop living in shame. Stop living in fear you got some bad things going on in your life right now. You wonder how in the world am I going to make it? I'll tell you how you're going to make it. You're not going to make it just by your strength alone. You're going to make it by coming back to the cross and remembering he is the one that birthed me. He will hold me firm all the way to the end. What is the assurance of my salvation that my salvation is secure? It is not in the certainty of my decision, but it is in the solid foundation of knowing that it was God who birthed me. I can't undo God's work. Because it's his work. He birthed me any more than I could unbirth myself physically. I can't unbirth myself spiritually. So when the enemy throws all sorts of guilt and doubt and fear and challenges at you, just remember the reality is your heart is secure and safe because you were birthed by a sovereign God and Satan cannot touch you. Such that the hymn writer says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. You're free. But let me speak to those of you today who are not free. I want you to know I I prayed for you. You know that you're not free today. The reality is you know 
You know you are living for yourself. You do things that you know are wrong. You know that you are not a child of God. You're filled with guilt and fear and judgment. You are afraid. And friend, listen to me, you should be. And I wonder if today might be the day that you finally see it for what it is. You see the Bible, you see Jesus, you see the cross, you see your sin for what they're all about. And I wonder today if you sent that this message is somehow divinely designed just for you. I wonder today if you see it, you see yourself, you see your sin, and you see Jesus, and you are ready, and you are ready today to open up your heart and receive this Jesus who wants to make you a new creature. Receiving Jesus simply means that you put your faith and your trust in him, in his death, in his life. It means that you believe in him, that you receive him, that you welcome him into your heart, that you say to him, I am done with me. It means, listen to me, that in the end, you give up. It means that you are a spiritual rebel and you say, I need you to rescue me by making me totally new. And let me tell you, on the authority of God's word, to those who received him, to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. That can be your story. I plead with you to receive him. Father, I pray that by your overwhelming spirit that you would even now draw men and women to yourself on this day, on December 11th, 2011, that this would be the day when there would be some who would say, on that day, and in that room, and in that moment, I saw the kingdom. I saw it. And I received it. And I turned from myself, and I ran to Christ. Oh, Lord, please, let that be the story of this day. And for those who know this truth and live in it, I pray that all through this season we will reflect on the beauty of a God who rescued rebels through regeneration. And listen, in, just in the quietness of this moment before I turn you loose and everything in our world just begins to assault you again, you need to know this, that afterwards there will be some folks up here at the front who would like nothing more than to pray with you and to usher you into a brand new life with Jesus. They're here. I'd love to be able to point you to him. If you have some other prayer burden that's going on and you just need someone to pray the gospel over you, they're here too for you. So Father, now, guide us as we respond to your word. Thank you that you rescue rebels through regeneration. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you.